1: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know. What were they thinking?
2: Joe Biden is getting his ass kicked in the polls, except in those polls in which he is kicking Trump's ass. 16 years ago, it was that I proposed that a new number be attached to all political polls, one which I modestly called the Keith number, which was very simply the undecideds plus the polls margin of error. You are up in this poll by five points, but the margin of error is three and the undecided is seven. Well, your Keith number is actually 10, and you do not want it to be larger than your lead, let alone twice as big as your lead. This was an attempt to take a tool out of the pollster's box of three-card Monty tricks and use it against them to underscore the point that the most important things about polls are their nearly universal unreliability and instability. We used the Keith number... And at least around our shop, it relaxed poll fever considerably. Yesterday morning, Bloomberg and Morning Consult put out swing state polls showing Trump up in every one of them. Yesterday afternoon, Quinnipiac put out a national poll showing that what had been too close to call in late December was now Biden by six. Quinnipiac also had Biden adding five points to his lead among women, upping it to 58 to 36. Quinnipiac also did the due to the convergence of forces beyond his comprehension. Donald Trump was suddenly squirted out of the universe like a watermelon seed and never heard from again. M.C. Escher poll. And yes, Trump beats Haley 77 to 21 and Haley beats Biden 47 to 42. Now, the pollsters have gotten smart in the last 16 years and have started making the margin of error more difficult to find. Or they've started to assign different margins of errors to different parts of their poll and to split undecideds into someone else or no answer or refuse to answer. Not as a result of the Keith number, just a coincidence, because I'm hardly the only person to have existential doubts about polls. And I certainly was not the first. But best as I can calculate, margin of error in Quinnipiac, the good one for Biden, is just about 3% which is pretty damn good. And the undecided is six, which means, sure, Biden is ahead by six, but the Keith number is nine, which means I'm not wrapping myself in this poll either. It could be one third wrong. On the other hand, in those Bloomberg swing state individual polls, they have smooshed them all together and they have Trump up 48 to 40, an eight point lead. Margin of error, well, Bloomberg is making this tough on me. They say it's plus or minus 1%, which means 2%, and they say each individual state's margin of error is between 3 and 5%. I will give them something of the benefit of the doubt and say the overall margin of error in this poll is 4, but the undecided is 12. So 4 plus 12 is 16. Thus, the Keith number in the favorable Trump swing state poll is nearly twice as much as Trump's lead, so this poll could be one half wrong. This is why I hate polls. I often cite the movie Network as the most prophetic film ever made, and it is certainly so about television news, but it really was about television news about politics. One of the most shocking things to the audiences of 1976 that saw that film when new was that network predicted a showbiz, slick, entertainment-oriented national newscast that relied on things that the TV networks of the time would never let their real-life Cronkites and Huntleys and Brinkleys and Reasoners touch, let alone depend on. And the most shocking was a regular segment that movie auteur Patty Chayefsky called Vox Populi, which was clearly a nightly opinion poll, not only treated as news, but featured as one of the most important and popular things on the news. In 1976, it was unthinkable. In 2024, it is automatic. There is no question that there is science to political polling, but much of the refinement of that science is how to get people to answer the way the pollster wants them to answer. I have mentioned this previously. In 2003, when I was back at MSNBC for what was literally planned as three days relief for the 5 p.m. anchor who was very sick... And when I had no interest in returning to work there full time, my old friends there revealed that they were about to launch an 8 p.m. newscast called Countdown, and they had already drawn up the contract for the new host they so desperately wanted that they were buying him out of his contract with ABC News. That man's name was Sam Donaldson. Involuntarily, I laughed out loud at this, literally thinking they were kidding. Don't you know? I asked. I've been working at ABC Radio for a year now. They're trying to get Sam to quit. They took him off TV. They put him on a radio call-in show. When that didn't work, they took him off the radio call-in show and made it an online-only call-in show. I filled in for him last month. We got like three calls. The MSNBC executive went cold. And then, without even asking me to leave the room, he made a phone call. Frank, Phil, Frank, I have to get out of this Donaldson deal, buddy. Uh, how quickly could you get me a poll or, or, or maybe a focus group that shows putting Sam Donaldson on will be a, a disaster? Okay, great. Fax it to me. Oh, oh Frank, do me another favor. Another one. G- g- get me a focus group that shows that uh, Keith Olbermann would be great for 8 p.m. Again. Frank was Frank Luntz. Within 48 hours, the Sam Donaldson deal was dead. Within 72 hours, the president of MSNBC was calling my agent asking if there was any chance I might even consider coming back to MSNBC. That is the science of polling. And now having trashed polls, I will add that what is really useful in them is what sports reporters call interior numbers. Bloomberg asked those Trump voters in those swing states where he's ahead by eight, but the Keith number of uncertainty is 16, if they'd be very willing, or somewhat willing, or somewhat unwilling, or very unwilling to still vote for him if he was actually convicted by a jury. And 46% said very unwilling. And the undecided in that was only seven, and the margin of error is four, so at worst, at least 35% would drop Trump if he's convicted in the swing states. Ah, but what about Sam Donaldson? How do they feel about Sam? Who's voting for Sam Donaldson? Who out there has got Frank Luntz's phone number? Hell, who's got Judge Arthur Engeron's phone number? If you spent frustrating moments or hours or longer looking for Engeron's ruling on how much Trump owes... How much he owes the state of New York for business fraud, not how much he owes E. Jean Carroll, or how much he owes Michael Cohen, or how much he owes Stormy Daniels, or how much he owes the people of the United States of America. No, you're not nuts. You did not miss it. After a day of rumors yesterday, Judge Engeron did not announce the count and the amount, and he may not do it today, and he may not do it tomorrow, and somebody who may hear useful rumors as opposed to the ordinary kind— Former assistant New York attorney general and prosecutor of Trump University, Tristan Snell, says he hears aiming for early next week. Of course, that's fine. Except previously, Engeron was aiming for January 31st at the latest. And it ain't January anymore. The important part, the cancellation of corporate charters for Trump in New York state is already locked in. This is about how much the fine will be. The latest demand from the attorney general's office was three hundred and seventy million dollars. But Snell's expectation matches the conventional wisdom. And you can take the conventional wisdom for what it's worth. Do we have any polling on conventional wisdoms? But the expectation is the low end of the range that Trump's endless working of the refs and everybody related to the refs. And everybody working for the refs really has left Engeron trying to find a number that hurts, but is unlikely to be overturned. The fine could be as low as $200 million, which Trump would position as him being thrown into a bottomless pit and and burnt at the stake or something, but would actually be a comparative win for him and a reminder that he does what he does to the Arthur Engerons of this world because the sad truth is It works the appeals process, and don't lie. Through this 18 months of Trump in courtrooms, you have wondered to yourself, maybe we shouldn't have an appeals process in this country. Don't lie. You've thought it. I know I have. We kind of have to have one. The appeals process will be state appellate division, then the New York Court of Appeals, then Trump would try to get it to the Supreme Court. But there really isn't anything constitutional in this case. The point of the appeals would be the delay, because delay is what keeps Trump alive, maybe literally by this point, and what keeps anywhere from 283.3 million to 453.3 million in his pocket till further notice. One important caveat to that, when there are court judgments against you for $453.3 million and you have just been banned from doing business in the fourth most populous state in the country, I don't care if you're Elmer J. Fudd billionaire and you own a mansion and a yacht. Even before you actually have to pay the money, the banks will be decreasingly willing to loan you money. And that could be as devastating to Trump as the fines themselves. Delay keeps him alive. OPM, other people's money, keeps him solvent. The other defendant, J. Trump, news today is funnier, a lot funnier.
0: Somebody said to me, "Alina, would you rather be, um, would you rather be smart or pretty?" And I said, "Oh, easy, pretty." I can fake being smart.
2: <laughs> no, no, you can't. Turns out this is going to be one of the greatest soundbites of all time, because if Trump has not actually fired Alina Habba, I mean, why fire her? Why let all that effort to make her not look like Elise Stefanik's twin sister, by whatever means, go to waste? If he has not fired fired her, he has removed her from the E. Jean Carroll case. Haba might have survived looking like a, well, the worst thing we can call her is what she is, a parking lot lawyer in the trial itself. But then in an effort to pull her acorns out of that fire, she wrote the judge demanding more information to use in Trump's appeal about when he, quote, mentored E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. Eugene Carroll's lawyer fired back that there was no mentorship. She happened to overlap with the judge for less than two years, and she was an associate, and he was a partner, and they never met. And she wanted sanctions against Haba for the inference. Haba backed slowly away from the train wreck she caused, and then late Tuesday night, Trump posted I am in the process, along with my team, of interviewing various law firms to represent me in an appeal. Of the Carroll case by Felicia Trump used all his cliches but he never as much as mentioned poor little miss don't hate me because I'm pretty so I guess it's yabba Habba doo <laughs> Thank you, Nancy Faust. I cannot believe how much time and space was devoted to that social media kabuki theater in the Senate yesterday, but I'm glad everybody had fun booing and applauding and yelling and crying and threatening. And please rejoin us next year when after a year of utter inaction on the subject, they will enact exactly the same performance, only this time it will be in the style of Gilbert and Sullivan. There was one... Useful soundbite. Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, listen carefully. But at the end of the day, I I find it hard to believe. First honest statement by a Republican senator this year. But at the end of the day, I I find it hard to believe. The only other thing of true note in that hearing was the racism. Sure enough, it was from racist Tom Cotton from the state of racism. Racist Tom Cotton went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law and presumably Harvard racism. By the way, I've never been prouder that they would not let me in. Thank you, 1975. The CEO of TikTok, he is racist-ing in this soundbite, also went to Harvard to Harvard Business. The CEO's wife went to Harvard Business, but the CEO is from Singapore and his name is Shao Shi Chu, and that means Chinese descent. And good old racist Tom Racist Cotton is racist convinced that Mr. Shu Shi Chu is lying about being in Singapore and is actually... A Chinese spy. And the real problem about racist Republican bastard morons like racist Tom, racist cotton racist, is that they actually racist think they are racist right. You said today, as you often say, that you live in Singapore. Of what nation are you a citizen? Singapore. Are you a citizen of any other nation? No, Senator. Have you ever applied for Chinese citizenship? senator i served my nation I'm in asking, singapore I,
0: no I, I did not
2: do you have a singaporean passport yes and i served my military for two, two and a ha- half years in singapore. Do you have any other do you have any other passports from any other nation no senator your wife is an american citizen your children are american citizens that's have correct you, have you ever applied for american citizenship not no not yet okay have you ever been a member of the chinese communist party
0: senator i'm singaporean no
2: have you ever been associated or affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? No, Senator. Again, okay. I'm a Singaporean. Appalling. I wish there was something legal I could do to render Tom Cotton mute for the rest of his life. And by the way, a bell of some kind must have gone off yesterday morning in every elected Republican's head. Not just racism everywhere, local, national, state level but no longer the slightest effort to conceal it. This next creature is Eric Wimberger. And he is a Wisconsin state racist Senator representing Green Bay. And the website Heartland Signal found this and this racist Wimberger actually said this out loud at a hearing. One of the
1: main effects that this bill will have is that it will put race hustlers out of business and uh, that would stop this uh, graft on, <clears throat> on people's suffering. So racism is, uh, is a problem, and it probably is something that will exist in the ether, and it will never go away to a degree where we can manage it. If what we do fundamentally in our policies is very consciously decide that a black man ought to get what a black man deserves and a white man ought to get what a white man deserves. You just used a term I've never heard before, and I'm going to ask you your definition. What's race hustler? Oh, um, race hustlers would be all those people who sell seminars and uh, like Al Sharpton. I see. So race but what makes them a race hustler? Um, profiteering off of it. The term,
2: quote, race hustler is not some new construction by the gentle racists from Green Bay, Mr. Wimberger scumbag. It is a term racists invented not long after slavery ended. It was designed to remind black people that they might be free, but they'd better not try to act free. Anybody who advocated for equality, not accommodation, was called a race hustler. W.E.B. Du Bois was called a race hustler in 1901. Martin Luther King was called a race hustler after his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. And if you wonder where the Tom Cottons of this world come from, the answer is they come from the Eric Wimbergers. And yet, somehow more terrifying still, there are the racists who clearly are racists and clearly say racist things and do racist things, and yet they think their racism is not racism. Nikki Haley on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God and DJ Envy and she she doesn't even know how irredeemably racist she really is.
0: I want to ask why you said if Kamala was president, why would send chills down sure. your spine? Sure. So a couple of things. I think with Obama, that was, if you go back, that's when we really started to feel the division. That's when we were. It, it was. The, a lot of that was because of white supremacists, though. Well, no, I think it was it was everything. Everything was exaggerated with the Obama administration. It became more about gender. It became more about race. It became more about separating Americans instead of bringing them together. That was because was, was
1: of right-wing media, though. Boy, they, were, they were scared to death of a black president.
0: Look, I don't think everybody is at fault. I'm not saying that one person did this, but I'm saying under that administration, it really did cause some... You just felt... People felt like they were being put in camps through that administration. The second thing is... I saw he, he was very much an Iranian sympathizer. He very much kept wanting to support and do things with Iran. I think that's incredibly dangerous. This is a, a culture that says death to America, and you have to always be careful. Kamala, it's from an experience standpoint. Asked about
2: Kamala Harris. She answered about Barack Obama. Didn't even pause. And then she talked about racial division for two minutes. And then said, well, the part about Harris is about inexperience. The division she referred to in this country, that probably started with uh, white people owning black people. Or if you don't like that as the starting point, maybe it started with this the Civil War dipshit. Oh, and, and people were divided and put in camps here during World War II." When Democrats and Republicans united to put Americans literally in camps because they were of Japanese descent? And Obama was, you say, an Iranian sympathizer? Sympathizer. I mean, like like you, Nikki, you're a Ku Klux Klan sympathizer? Or did you mean something less stupid than that? Nikki Haley is a lying racist cracker. I don't care what her birth name is, or where her parents are from. Nikki Haley proves my old theory of the lifeboat. Your ocean liner sinks. You are reenacting the end of Titanic. Suddenly you're in the water. You bob to the surface and miraculously next to you is a fully outfitted lifeboat that can seat 18 people. One of two things happens next. One You pull yourself into the lifeboat. Your mind races. Do I bring in 17 women or do I have to pull in a few men to help me row and I can only take 14 women and and the three of four of us that could we take 20 kids instead of 10 adults or something else happens? You look at the food supply and all the space, and you calculate how much longer you could survive by yourself if you can just make sure that nobody else gets into your lifeboat. And you think, thank God this thing has oars, now I can kill anybody who tries to get into my lifeboat. Because you have your lifeboat and to hell with everybody else. And that person, is Nikki, god damn her to hell, Haley. Also of interest here, and somehow none of that might have been the single most racist thing said by a sitting elected Republican all day yesterday. And clearly none of that was the most stupid thing said by a sitting elected Republican yesterday. Congressman Derek Van Orden in 2024 is so dumb that it turns out he is even dumber than Congressman Derek Van Orden in 2023. That's next. This is Countdown.
1: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann.
2: Still ahead on Countdown, if you heard the rumors, that'd be rumors with two U's, that Netflix is about to follow Spotify and drop Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, I think you might be amused and perhaps informed and educated by my own experience trying to explain to Netflix that if it chose to, it could own the entire political media video market. It could replace television and all online stuff in political news. And Netflix's response, its experience trying to explain to me, but how could we ever put the Italian subtitles on all these news programs fast enough? Seriously. Italian subtitles. Things I promise not to tell, including Dirce, Netflix. Coming up. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst person's... Ended the world. The bronze, worse, Jesse Waters, the Bill O'Reilly intern who was promoted to 8 p.m. host when everybody else at Fox got fired. MSNBC's Joy Reid swore on the air the other night, apparently, and Waters, who is so unjustifiably self-confident that he truly owes part or most of his salary to professors Dunning and Kruger in licensing fees, waters decided that it was all part of a plot of some kind what kind of plot he didn't say but what does that matter msnbc doesn't respect their audience he said well he has them there but he then blew the thing by adding quote they're not putting on a show to inform their viewers it's a brainwashing op everything to jesse is an op Problem here is to recognize a brainwashing op, Jesse, you'd have to have a brain. The runner-up, worser, Congressman Troy Nels. More confirmation in the flesh that we just don't pay our public service members enough money to keep the really good candidates in public service and instead going to where the big cash must be running 7-Elevens. Congresswoman Cory Bush married her security guard who had gone to work for her after she got a series of death threats against her racist death threats. Congressman Nels, who has already revealed he has no idea what Congress is supposed to be doing and thinks he's only there to impeach the director of Homeland Security or the president or a statue or a bartender he doesn't like, Nels has now added to his confessions by going full-on double racist. She doesn't even support the police, says Nels, but the idea to pay her thug money to try to help protect her this and that for what? Maybe if she wouldn't be so loud all the time, maybe she wouldn't be getting threats. Since we're postulating hypotheticals, maybe if Troy Nels and the other white supremacists of Texas jumped into the Rio Grande, she wouldn't be getting threats either. It's kind of amazing how much subhuman bilge Nels spit out in that one paragraph He basically told an African-American woman that she caused the racist death threats against her. She called, he called rather, her husband a thug. By the way, her husband is an army veteran. He called army veterans thugs. And as to Nels's, she doesn't even support the police. Remember this idiot cracker congressman who referred to the law officers injured on January 6th as the quote, sobbing police? The idiot who said that was Troy Nels. Why do you hate the police, Troy Nell's? But our winner, the worst, another congressman who needs to go through post-concussion protocol and explore the potential value of shock treatments. Professional or amateur, Derek, hey, you kids, get out of my capital, Van Orden, the Wisconsin rep who looks like somebody just hit him in the face with a snow shovel. Besides his genuinely disturbing behavior towards well, towards everybody, Van Orden seems to be fighting something that stands in the way between himself and reality. Confronting economist Robert Reich, who spells his name R-E-I-C-H and pronounces it Reich, Van Orden said that he should change his first name to Third, which Van Orden thought was clever, but which unfortunately for the joke Van Orden was going for would mean that the ex-Labor Secretary would then be known as Third Reich. Well... Mr. Van Orden has topped himself. Senator Elizabeth Warren has put out some economic data on wealth in this country and added quote, tax the rich, Van Orden's clever repost this time. He retweeted her and added a screenshot of her supposed net worth and wrote above that, the words, okay, you first. I hope he did that himself rather than delegating that to some staffer. You're the staffer in charge of three word tweets. The screenshot is the story. It's from a website called CA Knowledge, which appears to be run by somebody who claims to be an accountant in India, who seems to spend most of his time guessing how much money other people in the world have. CA Knowledge says, for instance, that I make more than $1,700,000 a month, and Jesse Waters makes $100,000 a month, and Shohei Otani, makes $700,000 a month, meaning Shohei Otani's new $700 million deal with the Dodgers must be for 83 years and that I somehow make a million dollars more a month than he does. I'm just going to suggest here maybe CA knowledge is not even really making any guesses at all. It may just be putting in random numbers and then hitting send. Now, back to the original point, the financial biography C.A. Knowledge provides of Senator Warren that Van Orden screenshotted and posted has a couple of red flags that Van Orden, unsurprisingly, was too stupid to notice. It says that Liz Warren makes $400,000 a month, but also that she only makes $285,000 a year. More importantly, and so far there is no evidence that anybody has broken this fact to Representative Van Orden, CA knowledge includes some non-financial data in its profiles, and in the profile of Elizabeth Warren that he posted, it says, Age, 74 years, birthplace, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, height, United States Senator. Height, United States Senator. Republicans long ago proved it does not matter to them if what they say or do or post is not true, uh, largely because their supporters long ago proved it doesn't matter to them either, and usually they don't notice. But the screenshot this idiot Van Orden posted contains only 39 words and one photograph. And if that kind of input load is too much for Derek Van Orden, may I suggest a medically induced coma. Congressman Derek His height is Pineapple Van Orden, today's worst person in the world and also the dumbest.
1: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
2: Finally, to the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And I don't usually venture into financial commentary or advice. You will remember the story of my great grandfather who gave away the name General Motors for free. But I just read of Netflix finally staunching the subscriber flow. It had lost around a million two hundred thousand households in the first half of this year, but added about twice that many in the third quarter thanks to such uplifting programming as the Jeffrey Dahmer story, so yay, corporate cannibalism profits. Anyway, I had an experience with Netflix, which so shook my confidence in them that it made me fearful of even playing their stuff on my big TV because I was wondering if their stuff would damage my big TV. This is my favorite story of what happens when media management misunderstands its own business and wrongly thinks superstitions and coincidences are inviolable rules for success. This happened on June 17, 2016, the day I found out about the vitality, the importance, the absolute necessity of... Netflix's Italian Subtitles. I don't want to exaggerate the importance of the two video series I did for the GQ magazine site in 2016 and 2017, The Closer and The Resistance. I mean, for one thing, The Closer was so named because each of the handful of us involved in its production could not really conceive that there were enough morons and closeted racists in this country to actually elect crazy Trump. We grandly called the videos The Closer because we expected our expositions of Trump's essential fraudulence and dangerousness would close the deal for Hillary Clinton. Uh Uh-huh. But people watch those videos. I forget the final count. 180 or so episodes, 400 million or so views. Not plays, but people actually viewing essentially the whole piece. And CBS News did a story once with the web analyzing platform Social Flow that showed that the first episode of the resistance from November 16th, 2016, was the top story or video on Facebook through the first six months of the Trump administration. The calculation and Lord knows what this formula actually looks like, but the calculation was probably pretty close that it reached 54 million people, the equivalent of one out of six of everybody in the country. That's CBS News reporting this, not my ego. And ego is not the reason I mention this. Well, it's not the only reason I mention this. MSNBC had offered me a new show in January of 2016, but I would have hated it and you would not have watched it, so it was not supposed to have any commentaries in it. And a conservative co-host was supposed to be there. And the goal was she and I would be the wacky couple who would find middle ground. Plus, I would have had to move to Los Angeles, even though I could see the headquarters of NBC News out my bedroom window in New York. And then when it was successful, the producers wanted me to simply get on a plane from Los Angeles and show up one morning in the New York office of the president of NBC News, Andy Lack, and tell him either we were scrapping the format and relaunching Countdown that night or I was quitting. In short, they wanted me to do this lousy show and then run a palace coup against the president of NBC News. I passed. I put my energy instead into finding a new platform for Countdown or a Countdown-like show. I had a deal in place to become the video anchor of The Huffington Post, a daily exclusive commentary, interviews, features, breaking news, funny stuff, whatever. Two days later, two days later, Arianna Huffington sold The Huffington Post. No more deal. Before and after this... Some friends from Lionsgate Productions and I were trying to sell two ideas, pitching, to a series of forward-looking media companies. One was that they should be producing and running or posting or streaming or whatever the series of my commentaries that became The Closer and then The Resistance. I don't know what that would have been worth, but I do know that the tiny slice of the advertising GQ got just from the commercials that would roll if you watched one of the episodes on YouTube was well over a million dollars. The overall profit might have been 10 times that. Production costs were like $50,000. But I had a second bigger idea to pitch to these other companies. Who wants to own the future of cable news when there isn't any cable news anymore? I correctly predicted 2022 back in 2016. Who wants to own the future of cable news when there isn't any cable anymore? Start with just my commentaries, and as they make money for you, build out. If they work, you add my interviews and my debates, and then somebody else's commentaries, and then some conservatives' commentaries, and then add all of what is now cable news and put it on one streaming platform. We rented a studio. We made a demo commentary. We made what TV pitchmen call a deck that's how I knew the producers were serious. We met with HBO about this. We met with something called Pop TV, The Daily Beast, Yahoo, TuneIn, Sony, Epics, BBC, Hulu, Condé Nast. Ultimately, that led to the GQ series. But the one I had the most hope for was Netflix. The way I saw it, they could start this tiny little thing in the corner of their homepage called uh, Newsflix. And you could click on it, and someday there would be a menu. With Keith Olbermann commentaries, and I don't know, Glenn Beck commentaries, and Bill Maher commentaries, and Jesus H. Christ commentaries, and Keith Olbermann newscast, and Lou Dobbs newscast, and, and, and. All of them partisan, but collectively one giant all-encompassing bipartisan because of volume news and commentary site. The proverbial marketplace of ideas. Dunkin' Donuts and Baskin-Robbins and Pizza Hut living together, only as newscasters, you know, for kids. I thought Netflix would see it immediately. They would own news. All of it. I mean, these were the people who realized... America was too lazy to go down to the video store anymore. So they began to send America rented DVDs by mail and people actually returned the DVDs. And then they realized that America was too lazy to return them anymore and that the optimum date to switch from DVDs to the then laugh out loud bad concept of online video was precisely January 16th, 2007. These guys had the gonads to take a brilliantly successful, profitable new idea and gradually strangle it and replace it with a different brilliantly successful new idea. I could not wait to meet them. My agent at the time, my would-be producer, the head of television of Lionsgate, like the chief of chief at Lionsgate, and I... Went to the Netflix building in Beverly Hills at 1030 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Friday, June 17th, 2016. It felt perfect. Netflix was still just down from the corner of Alden and Maple. 25 years later, I had lived two blocks away from Alden and Maple. It was a four-minute walk, tops. Yeah, the two people there from Netflix were vice presidents. Wish I remembered their names. I don't know. Maybe they're still there. I deliberately blocked the names from my memory after this. One was in charge of documentaries. One was in charge of nonfiction series. One was a man. One was a woman. I did most of the talking, and I said, start with these daily commentaries. You'll never have a better launch window than the four months before the election. We could have one ready for you to upload by Monday. This is lowest risk, highest reward. How would you like to own the news? Or if it doesn't work for some reason, you spent, I don't know, $100,000. The man spoke first. But if you're going to do these daily, how are people going to binge watch them? I mean, the first time somebody comes to Netflix to see your commentaries, there's only going to be one to watch. I took a quick breath and explained that could be a drawback. On the other hand, within four weeks, there would be 20 of them to binge We could even start with five or 10 evergreen commentaries so that when they come to see the official premiere, they watch that, then 10 more first day and, 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 and you guys keep telling the press that your problem is people binge and then they don't come back for another five days or week. This way, at least some of them would come back every day to your website. You'd begin to solve your frequency of visitation problem, wouldn't you? I mean, you're the executives. I'm just the talent, the meat puppet, but. Isn't that the. Then the woman interrupted me. Okay, yeah, that would help. And I like starting with 10. But what about the subtitles? There was a long pause. Then the head of Lionsgate said, What subtitles? The man said, Well, everything we run is subtitled in the language of each country we run it in. So your commentary would have to have subtitles added in like 16 different languages. That usually takes three months. Could you do commentaries today that would still work in September? I said, uh, well, no. But but why do you need subtitles? Why do you need, say, Italian subtitles or, or any subtitles? I mean, it's very unlikely, I said, that people worldwide who are interested enough in American politics to watch commentaries about American politics don't already speak English. The woman looked aghast. I mean, the coloring of her face changed, but the subtitles, she said, we, we always have subtitles. We always do it that way here. And I said, well, yeah, I understand. But, but see, this would be for news flicks, not Netflix per se. See, you could adapt your rules to fit the urgency of timeliness. I mean, MSNBC has a profit of like 500 million a year because of timeliness, and they're last in profit in cable news. Couldn't you adjust slightly for $500 million a year? The man now looked aghast. No, we couldn't. This is the Netflix rule. We can't change a rule. I began to feel not happy. The man spoke again. Plus, what about the 1201 rule? We all looked at each other. You said the commentaries would probably work best at 8 or 9 p.m., but in all of our countries, anything new gets posted at exactly 12.01 a.m. local time. Only at 12.01 a.m. So anything you did today could not possibly run until 12.01 a.m. tomorrow. I was still reeling from the Italian subtitles. Now there was also an unbreakable 12.01 tomorrow rule. I was thinking of getting up and leaving, but the woman apparently had one more gut punch to throw at me. I also wanted to know if we somehow were able to turn the subtitles around with lightning speed uh, or skip them or or do them in, say, only two or three hours. The man interrupted. Plus the hours until it's 12.01. Don't forget them. She nodded. Yes, uh, plus the hours until it's 12.01. If we could somehow do that, what would happen if one day something went wrong technically and we couldn't upload that day and people came to the site and there wasn't a new one? What if it doesn't upload? Well, I had an answer to that, but I did not say it out loud. I said it a few minutes later to the head of Lionsgate after we had said goodbye to Mr. and Mrs. Vice President in the lobby of the Netflix building. I said, good God, these people are in the uploading business. They have been uploading for nine years. They aren't sure they can upload? What equipment have they been uploading with? Are they uploading from Kevin Spacey's 1996 Dell laptop? As I left to get in the car, to go to LAX to fly home to New York, totally disappointed, the Lionsgate guy was just shaking his head. I'm sorry. I had no idea. I'll call you later at exactly twelve oh one AM with Italian subtitles. <laughs> what if it doesn't upload? he said as he walked away from me. Christ, I gotta get my broker on the phone. I gotta sell all my Netflix stock. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the world headquarters of the Old Roman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums, and Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards, produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, were arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. By the way, that's TKO Brothers and not somebody named TKO Brothers, it's not Joyce Brothers brother or something. Joyce Brothers, who not only went to Cornell, as did I, but worked at the Cornell radio station, WVBR. Not any near mine, but we want to discuss this on Countdown. You've lost interest, haven't you? The sports music is the Ulrichman theme from ESPN2 written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc., our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Dennis Leary. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So, next countdown for this the 279th day until the 2024 U.S. presidential election and the 1,122nd day since dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the 14th Amendment, use the Insurrection Act, use the justice system, use the mental health system to stop him from doing it again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, bulletins as the news warrants, and if my throat permits. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and
1: good luck. But at the end of the day, I I find it hard to believe.
2: Countdown with Keith Ullerman is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.